0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today because we are going to be speaking to Dr. Lachlan McNamee about his book titled Settling for Less why states colonize and why they stop it's just come out from princeton university press and as the title states uh this deals with a pretty important question not just explaining why states colonize that would be worthy of a book in and of itself but this book actually even goes further to also explain why states stop colonizing and um, either stop at a particular place and don't go further or attempt a colonization realize it's not working out and then move backwards um this is a historical book, this is a current book, and essentially this explains a whole lot about the world, um, where we're at now, how we got here, um, and it's really, really fascinating. So I'm very excited for this conversation. Lachlan, thank you so much for being here to talk to us.
2: Uh, no, Thanks, Miranda. It's a pleasure to be here and to, to talk about the book with you.
1: Before we dive into the book, though, um, can you tell us maybe about the origin story of it? If you could introduce yourself and explain why you decided to write this?
2: Yeah. Um, so um, I am a political scientist. I'm uh, currently working at Monash University in Australia and UCLA. Um, I I guess, um, you know, growing up in Australia, um, have long been, you know, the, the key issue in Australia's history is kind of the... The horrific treatment of indigenous peoples continues to be kind of the the major political issue to the current day. Um, But, you know, my interest interest in this subject is both personal for that reason, but also um, comparative. When I uh, left high school, I lived in China for a while uh, and learned Chinese. And when I was in China, there was a lot of news about um, Han Chinese people um, moving to kind of frontier areas like Tibet and Xinjiang um, and displacing indigenous peoples there. Uh, And I would often raise this with my Chinese friends and we'd get into heated heated debates. And I would, you know, say how horrible this is and how could the government be doing this and why is it doing this? Uh, And they would, you know, throw it back on me and be like, we're simply doing exactly what the Australian government did to indigenous people. So how how could you be in a position to criticize the Chinese government? Um, So I guess... The book started way back then when from a kind of um, precocious teenager, uh, interested in thinking about, um, you know, comparing colonization projects in the global South and places like China and thinking about how they're similar and different to kind of the history of Western um, colonialism um, in the 1800s and 1900s.
1: That's a very interesting sort of point of debate to start a project from um, and very much makes sense in a way of kind of what the book has ended up as but before we get into kind of the number of examples you look at and explaining uh, the logic of colonialism and why states stop we should probably start with some definitions Uh, most importantly what do you mean by colonization
2: sure Um, so in the book I distinguish between imperialism which is states uh, annexing territory uh, in um, kind of frontier areas formerly not under their control Um, which is, you know, how we often refer to, say, Russian imperialism in eastern Ukraine at the moment. Um, And colonization. So colonization I define as um, the practice whereby states displace indigenous peoples uh, and import new populations of settlers who are ethnically distinct. And um, I define it in this way because uh, colonization originates in the Roman word colonists or farmer. So it was coined originally to describe the Roman practice of when it annexed new territories, it would send farmers to those territories to kind of claim those areas on behalf of, on behalf of the Roman state. And, you know, this is often what we mean when we say, you know, bees or birds or other animals, you know, colonize uh, new territory. They kind of move into those territories and set up shop. So it has this kind of ecological um, definition to it. And so when I refer, when I use the term colonization in the book, I use it to refer to humans when they forcibly go into a new territory and displace a pre-existing population and establish a new state. And this refers to both, say, European colonization, um, say white people moving to Australia in the 1800s or to uh, ongoing colonization projects in the global south today, uh, whether that be you know, Israeli settlements in the, in the West Bank or Chinese settlements in Xinjiang or Indonesian settlements in, in West Papua.
1: Thank you for explaining that. Um, I think... We're going to get into a number of those examples, um, kind of with the one you've mentioned most recently, because you actually start the book with uh, New Guinea. Why do you start there?
2: Yeah, so I begin the book with a kind of contrast between two states, and so um, the island of New Guinea um, was divided in half between Indonesia and Australia for most of the 20th century, and. Um, the western half of the island, or West Papua, is kind of a a key case where we can see colonization occurring today, or in very recent history. So Indonesia annexed the western half of New Guinea in the 1960s. And since then, it's had a kind of long running, uh, it's faced a long running independence movement from the indigenous population, who've been trying to establish their own nation state. Now, in order to defeat and prevent kind of West Papua's secession from the rest of Indonesia. Indonesia in the 1980s and 90s settled about 300,000 people from its core islands to West Papua, luring people with the promise of land from islands like Java and Bali and um, displaced tens of thousands of West Papuans, which turned West Papuans, the indigenous population, into into a minority in much of the island. And so Indonesia's policies in West Papua present us with this kind of puzzle, I guess, similar to China and, and Xinjiang, of, this, of, these, of a state ostensibly committed to anti-colonialism, nonetheless engaging in policies that, looked, that look highly colonial and kind of displacing indigenous populations and importing new populations of settlers. So the western half of the island was colonized by Indonesia, but the eastern half of the island was, was controlled by Australia for, until the 1970s. But bizarrely and perhaps contrary to our expectation, Australia, this kind of canonical settler colonial state that displaced much of the indigenous population on the mainland Australia, did not colonize Papua New Guinea. So Papua New Guinea had very few whites um, for most of the 20th century and in fact in the 1970s Australia pushed for Papua New Guinea to become independent. So Papua New Guinea was in some ways willingly decolonized by, by Australia. So we have this kind of strange juxtaposition here on the one hand the state in indonesia committed to anti-colonialism became a colonizer in new guinea and in australia this state committed to white supremacy became the kind of willing decolonizer in in new guinea and so i simply ask you know what's going on here what explains this contrast
1: so there of course are explanations for why states colonize um, and how they do it and where and when that could potentially answer this question you've posed. Um, But obviously, if the traditional answers were sufficient, uh, you wouldn't have written the book. So what is the traditional answer and why do you think it doesn't seem to work?
2: Yeah, so, you know, there are kind of two main schools of thought to explain why states colonise Indigenous peoples. So the first school of thought is um, kind of, Explains colonization through racial ideologies. So we expect that a state like Australia, committed to white supremacy, or a state like Israel, committed to Zionism, kind of a commitment to maintaining kind of ethnic purity of a state, should be more likely to displace an indigenous population and settle their lands with members of a dominant group. But, um, you know, building from that New Guinea contrast, that's it doesn't that the explanation doesn't really help make sense of these cases, right? Because Indonesia, the state ostensibly committed to anti-colonialism, to racial equality, became the colonizer in New Guinea. In Australia, the state committed to white supremacy for much of the 20th century to the white Australia policy became the willing decolonizer in New Guinea, did not colonize New Guinea. Um, so, these, these, so in some ways, a commitment to racial supremacy becomes neither a necessary nor sufficient explanation for colonization. Something else must be going on to kind of explain this this difference that we see in the world. Um, And the other kind of dominant explanation for why states colonize is explains colonization through the economic interests of states, right? So um, Patrick Wolfe and other scholars writing in um, post-colonial theory have, and, and kind of Marxist theory, explain colonization basically by uh, when states kind of annex territory that um, where the land is seen as potentially productive for agriculture and is populated by an indigenous group that isn't um, seen as a valuable labor force, then this theory predicts that um, states will displace that population and actively settle those lands with farmers from the core to um, kind of increase the amount of taxable in- income. And then this perspective basically explains variation in colonization through the economic interests of states. They'll only settle areas that are productive agricultural areas uh, where settler mortality isn't too high uh, or where um, the terrain is suitable. Um, And so I I critique this perspective because I I say it's um, kind of logically inconsistent because if we think of that states are uh, going to try and economically exploit frontier areas, then we have to think the different alternatives available to them. They could colonize a frontier area and and settle the area with a new population, but it's always going to be more valuable for states to simply exploit the pre-existing labor or try and trade with a population in the frontier than it is to settle that that territory with um, a new population. And this was evident even during kind of the height of British colonization. There was a famous select committee in the 1830s in the, um, the British Parliament that investigated kind of native policy across the empire. And this committee you know, looked at the British decision to open up land in southern Africa for, for a British settlement. And it was really damning of the decision of Britain to do so um, in, to clear the Zorsa in southern Africa um, because it had noted that the decision to do so inflamed conflict with the indigenous uh, nation and led to the kind of disruption of trade um, with that nation for a long period of time. Um, and all that Britain gained, in their words, was a, a small p- patch of land that could have been bought for a trifle. So colonization, essentially by trying to push a population into a frontier, inflames conflict with the pre-existing population. And so it's actually a very costly thing for state to do. And so, so I dig in. I dug into a lot of the cases where you know people thought that there was a clear interest of, of European colonizers to kind of to settle frontier areas like like Australia. Um, and it was, and it's not clear when you dig into the historical evidence that states actually saw at the time that colonization was something that was economically um, in their interest to do. In fact, when I delve into the kind of case of Australia, the 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 first time that Britain kind of opened up in scare quotes land for British settlement was when British settlers were moving into frontier areas against the wishes of the state. And the state feared that they would by doing, that these settlers would kind of overextend the state and they didn't want to and lead to a large degree of conflict on the frontier, which is not something they wanted at the time. So we can't just read back into um, colonization projects, the intentions of states, that thinking that it's always in the economic interest because actually um, colonization is something that's a costly practice. And so we have to think about the alternatives available to states and why states might colonize. And to do so, we have to think about what's going on on the ground and how the actions of settlers might kind of alter the, um, the, action, the interests of states.
1: So then let's think about what's happening on the ground um, because you outline a triangle of interests that you... Um, show and discuss uh, that makes this all make a lot more sense. So can you walk us through kind of this triangle and how it operates?
2: Yeah, so the main distinction that I make um, is that we have to distinguish the interests of states. Um, States uh, do have an interest in kind of controlling maximal territory at minimal costs and they want to kind of exploit the populations and labor and resources of a frontier. And then then you have the interests of settlers and settlers want land. Um, and then you finally have the indigenous population uh, who want political autonomy. And so the worst thing for them is for their land to be kind of taken by settlers. And distinguishing between these kind of three actors, this kind of triangle of actors, helps us understand cases like Australia in the 1830s, when settlers began moving into frontier areas of their own volition, which was actually against the kind of intentions and interests of the British state at the time. Um, And it also helps us understand cases where states do want to settle frontier areas, um, like Australia and Papua New Guinea, but settlers don't move to those areas. Um, So, Kind of distinguishing between states and settlers kind of opens us up to understanding, you know, when those interests are aligned, when states want to recruit settlers to move to frontier areas and they're successful, when settlers move into those areas of their own volition and the kind of state has to um, decide whether to authorize those settlements or not, as well as cases where states try and recruit settlers but fail to do so.
1: Before we get into the case studies, I suppose, because I do obviously want to ask you rather a lot about them. Given that triangle, is there perhaps an example you could walk us through um, to sort of illustrate how this works?
2: Yeah, so um, I make a kind of typology. So cases of what I call settler-led colonization are kind of the cases like Australia in the 1830s that I described before. So in the 1830s, um, Britain controlled mainly the area of Sydney and Tasmania. And Britain had sent a number of kind of penal colonists to that um, area, basically in order to prevent France from annexing Australia. Um, But in the 1830s, kind of a number of British settlers chafing at the kind of restrictions on settlements to the areas immediately around Sydney and Tasmania, um, sailed and set up uh, a new settlement in present-day Melbourne. Uh, And this created a kind of crisis um, on the part of the British state as the number of letters that, um, between uh, Sydney and London where, where the, whereby British officials basically had to decide whether they wanted to um, send soldiers to displace those settlers or whether they were going to authorise the kind of settlements. Um, and that's a kind of, this is what a dynamic of what I call settler-led colonisation. When settlers are moving into frontier areas and states essentially have to decide whether they're going to authorise those settlements or not. Um, and... This is often called homesteading in the in the United States, in the Western United States, where this whereby the state kind of follows the settlers. Um, the settlers begin moving into their front into frontier areas because they want land, and the, the state has to decide whether it will protect those settlers and kind of um, from attacks from the indigenous population, or whether they will try and restrict settlement. And this is quite different to what I call state-led colonization. So in, in, in cases of state-led colonization, it's actually the state that um, is recruiting settlers, that is designating sites for settlement, that is um, uh, actively um, displacing the indigenous populations in the frontier. And you know, one, one example, you're know, going back in um, a similar time period would be Britain in British settlements in Northern Ireland. So... Um, right around the same time period as kind of Britain began settling North America, Britain also settled um, uh, tens of thousands of Protestants into Northern Ireland. And it did so, um, and it set up a kind of elaborate settlement scheme whereby it um, is carved up the land and allocated each plot to a different settler. Um, and it did so because, um, and these, these kind of state-led colonization practices, I argue, often occur in response to a threat. So a state, can fears that it's going to essentially lose control over a frontier area if it doesn't quickly import a population into, from the core into the frontier and it doesn't trust the indigenous population who might be seen as kind of allegiant to a foreign power or who are actively engaged in rebellion. And so they want to displace that population and quickly import a kind of new population from the frontier. And that's what was happening in Northern Ireland in the sixteen hundreds, where the Spanish Armada had almost invaded Britain, and a number of kind of Irish lords had just joined forces with Spain to try and rebel against Britain. Who and the Irish, these Irish lords were Catholics, and so Britain essentially um, uh, decided to that the key solution to kind of pacifying Northern Ireland would be to to protestantize that area to displace all the Catholics and import tens of thousands of Protestants. And so these kind of state-led colonization practices argue, going right back to the Roman Empire, you know, usually occur along frontier areas where states kind of don't have much control and they fear that if they don't quickly import population from the core, they'll, they'll lose control over the area. And so... Um, this, this, and unlike kind of settler-led colonization, state-led colonization is still occurring to the current day. So, I spend a lot of time in the book talking about cases like uh, Indonesia and West Papua, um, whereby the state actively recruited settlers, designated sites for settlement, and it did so because, it, as I describe in the book, in the 1980s there was a major rebellion in in West Papua that almost succeeded in capturing the regional capital. And, and this this uh, insurgency uh, was led by a number of groups that were based in Papua New Guinea and the response of the Indonesia was basically to um, colonize the borderland with Papua New Guinea to prevent um, uh, any insurgents from crossing the border by displacing all the indigenous Papuans from the borderland and settling those areas with Javanese and Balinese uh, members of ethnic groups whom the Indonesian state considered uh, more, um, more loyal and so those are the kind. Of, that's the main distinction I make is between kind of settler-led colonization practices, which occur in response to the kind of interests of state of settlers into into kind of gaining land on the frontier, and state-led colonization, which is usually a response to conflict and a crisis of kind of control.
1: And speaking about the cases in the book, um, I think that was definitely one of the strengths is the kind of breadth over space and time that you look at. Uh, could you just? kind of list out I suppose for us which cases you cover and then explain how did you choose them choosing cases is always the tricky part
2: yeah no for sure so you're right in the book I um I do kind of theorize from a number of cases especially like in the the front and back ends but my the key cases that I study to to kind of examine logics of state-led colonization um uh China so um look at China's settlement projects in Xinjiang, and um, Xinjiang is an area where the proportion of Han Chinese um, went from about 5%, and Han Chinese are the kind of dominant ethnic group in China. Um, So Han Chinese went from about 5% to about um, 40% in Xinjiang in the course of about um, two or three decades in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. So it was a major change in Xinjiang's demography, and um, I spend a lot of time studying essentially where China sent people, why it sent people to particular areas, at particular points in time, and not others in Xinjiang. And I also look at um, I look at both the kind of crisis that China faced in the 1960s when it was conflicting with the Soviet Union. Um, during the so-called Sino-Soviet split. And I show how China settled ethnically Russian areas as well as areas that it feared that the Soviet Union could easily invade um, from, from um, Kazakhstan into Xinjiang. And then I look at... Um, China's shift in the 1990s in a separate chapter. Essentially, since the 1990s, China's faced a long running Islamist insurgency, and it's, so it's begun to try and settle um, Uyghur and Muslim majority areas. And these areas are in the south of Xinjiang, unlike the kind of Russian dominated areas in the north of Xinjiang. And I look at how China has tried to recruit settlers to kind of southern Xinjiang since then in response to this kind of crisis of, of, of control. And two other chapters uh, build kind of examine this um, juxtaposition between um, Indonesia and Australia and New Guinea. So essentially, I draw on a lot of data to examine why is it that Indonesia settled West Papua in the 1980s and 90s and why did it settle some areas and not others. And I look at Australia's settlements in Papua New Guinea throughout the 20th century as well as the Northern Territory, which is um, the northern um, half of Australia. And um, I look at why Australia tried to settle those areas uh, and why it failed to kind of colonize those areas with whites. And the reason I chose those cases was essentially because, you know, as social scientists, we like to rule out alternative explanations. So studying You know, one province like Xinjiang over a long period of time helps me kind of rule out alternative explanations and better identify, you know, why China settled the north at this time and the south at this time. And similarly for for New Guinea, uh, because the geographic conditions of the island are identical either side, I can basically explain why Indonesia settled West Papua, but Australia did not settle Papua New Guinea.
1: So... Because the data for that chapter in particular I found really fascinating, um, I hope you don't mind if I ask a bit of a follow-up on that particular point for Indonesia. Um, yeah. Why did Indonesia settle some areas uh, and not others?
2: Yeah, so essentially um, Indonesia primarily settled um, the border areas with Papua New Guinea because Papua New Guinea was a base for West Papua and insurgents, the kind of independence movement. And so it wanted to cut off uh, cross-border movements, and it was unable to di- basically distinguish who was an insurgent and who wasn't. So it treated all Papuans along the borderland as potential insurgents and cleared them from the borderland and settled the borderland with um, with Javanese um, settlers. And so the borderland between West Papua and Papua New Guinea is still is t- t- today the most, most kind of um, settler predominated and Muslim-majority area of of um, West Papua. And it also settled uh, the most resource-rich areas of West Papua. Um, So especially um, the area around the Grasberg Gold Mine, uh, which is the kind of largest gold mine in the world and is the second largest copper mine in the world and generates about 50% of West Papua's um, gross domestic product every year. So half the wealth in West Papua comes from this one site, which makes it very strategically important to, to the Indonesian state, which extracted... Millions, hundreds of millions of dollars from um, from from Grasberg over the late twentieth century. Um, so essentially, West Pap- uh, sorry, Indonesia, wanted to establish control around that that resource rich site. And so um, I show how, following the discovery of this mine, it cleansed the area around the mine of um, tens of thousands of West Papuans and began to settle that area with about twenty thousand people from the rest of um, Indonesia. And um, So essentially it colonized the mine site to establish control over that area as it feared that without doing so, the mine could be easily disabled by um, West Papuan insurgents.
0: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
1: Thank you for explaining that. Um, Obviously, all the case studies I found really interesting, but the kind of precision of the data being able to rule out alternative explanations in that case um, was really quite cool and for listeners who are thinking of reading the book uh, the visualization of this makes it even more dramatically apparent what's happening um so we definitely kind of recommend that chapter for anyone wanting to see this literally um in more detail
2: yeah Um, totally Uh, it was a you know i was surprised to see how um you know i guess porous and how detailed the indonesian government's data was um Mm -hmm. you know surprise and not surprise like states put a lot of money into funding colonization so it's in some ways unsurprising that they would spend quite a bit of money tracking you know settlers and where they were sent and so Indonesia collected data very precise data on exactly how many settlers were sent to exactly what farm and exactly what year and so you know as you were saying I can really reconstruct that that colonization pro- program in very precise detail
1: mm. And in a lot of ways, that kind of precision and the interests that the state has in kind of having this policy be exactly the way they wanted raises some interesting questions that we've sort of touched on a little bit, but I'd like to get in more Um, specifically the idea that state-led colonization, there's often a fear component around territorial insecurity. Um, And in some of the examples you've mentioned, kind of ethnicity keeps coming up, right? The idea of in Northern Ireland, Protestant populations are... Kind of particularly important, uh, Javanese or Balinese. That it's not just any settlers that the state is trying to um, move into a particular place, but there's particular identity criteria. So, could you tell us more about state-led colonization and this intersection with ethnicity and territorial insecurity?
2: Yeah. So, uh, you know, ethnicity in periods of conflict, you know, takes on. In ethically diverse areas, takes on a really important signifier um, because, in settings like um, Ireland in the 1500s or 1600s, or, or Britain at that time, as I'm sure you're aware, um, your identity as a Protestant or Catholic was a really important signifier of your likely political allegiance, whether that was to, you know, um, Queen the first you know, Queen Elizabeth, or whether it was to the Pope, for instance, um, and. So, and this is true in Indonesia and West Papua too, you know, whether you're um, uh, in, a, in a setting of conflict where states are, not, are unable to distinguish between friend or foe, whether you're an indigenous Papuan or whether you're a Javanese becomes a kind of ster- a stereotypical proxy for whether you're likely to be allegiant to the state or whether you're likely to be allegiant to a hostile power. And so it's in these settings of conflict in ethnically diverse frontiers where states uh, unable to determine who's friend or foe, that they're particularly likely to want to use ethnicity as an ethnic change, as a kind of barometer of their control. Um, and so changing the ethnic balance of a, of a contested frontier uh, becomes a way of consolidating control over a frontier area when you're un- otherwise unable to determine you know, who's going to be allegiant to you or who's not. Um, and that's why we see ethnicity Play such an important role in colonization projects because it, it's a signal of your of your political loyalty or not to 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 the state or to a foreign state. I'll provide another example, um, you know, in in Cyprus, for instance. Um, there's been a huge amount of demographic change over the last 50, um, sixty years, as. Um, Greece and Turkey have conflicted over control of Cyprus. And Cyprus used to be formally really ethnically heterogeneous. There were there were ethnic Turks, there were Turkish speakers, there were Greek speakers. Um, but in the 1970s, following this kind of crisis between, and conflict between Turkey and Greece, um, both um, Greece and Turkey um, saw kind of the ethnic balance as a likely... Uh, barometer of you know where it is they're going to be able to consolidate control over, and so Turkey began to actively settle the areas that it controlled in northern um, Cyprus with ethnic Turks and displace uh, ethnic Greeks, as that was seen as a way of kind of getting rid of the disloyal population and populating with a loyal population, and similarly for um, for for Greek um, for for Greeks in Cyprus getting rid of ethnic Turks in these settings. Um, ethnically diverse settings your ethnic identity during conflict becomes a kind of visible and highly visible signifier of who you're allegiant to Uh, and that's why you know even we see ethnicity becoming you know playing this important role in conflict you know well before we often think of um, the emergence of race and nationalism Machiavelli in the 1500s was um in the, in the Prince was writing about how when states kind of talk, annex ethnically heterogeneous areas, they should displace areas um, that are populated by um, ethnic groups or people who speak like uh, a foreign state and populate people who, who are like your own. Um, because ever since antiquity, states kind of have the, the group that forms the majority kind of all core group what you speak what um, cultural practices you have how you look uh, becomes a stereotypically associated with that state and so whether you speak a certain language whether you look a certain way it becomes a signal of who you're likely allegiant to and so that's why i say that, you know um, in state building and ethnically diverse areas often becomes a form of demographic chess as states you know use ethnicity as a proxy for the extent of their control.
1: And this is, of course, um, very true today in Xinjiang. Um, And as you show in the book, both uh, in decades past in northern Xinjiang and very much uh, today in southern Xinjiang. Um, But... As much as that case study in and of itself tracing the change over time in Xinjiang was fascinating, um, perhaps even more intriguing was the compare and contrast that you've done between Australia's uh, Northern Territory um, and Papua New Guinea and that colonization effort um, that happened obviously it's not happening quite so currently, uh, with what China's doing kind of right now in southern Xinjiang. So I was wondering if you could sort of take us through these two places that seem quite different in terms of time and place, but actually there's a lot of similarities between the colonization efforts.
2: Yeah, so, you know, recall that, you know, earlier, the main distinction I made was right between states and settlers and in, in periods of conflict, states might want to quickly settle frontier areas that are ethnically diverse, populated by kind of a stereotypically disloyal population, or um, at least provide a first line of defense against a potential invader. Um, but it's because settlers have their own distinct interests, it, they might not be able to be actually able to attract people and settlers to move from the core to the frontier. Um, so... It, and the argument I make in the book and one of the kind of key arguments is that this difficulty in attracting settlers becomes much more difficult as states become more developed. So essentially in pre-industrial areas, it's really easy to colonize estates as land is the most valuable asset. And um, so it's very easy to attract agriculturalists to move to contested frontiers by simply Clearing a population and opening up land for your your kind of core group, and that was true, for instance, of Indonesia and um, its its transmigration policies in in the twentieth century, where it resettled about five million people across the rest of the archipelago. Um, the, this this program was oversubscribed, as um, people wanted to take up land, especially if you were landless um, agriculturalist in Java, if you. get a piece of land in the frontier you can improve your livelihood so it's very easy to colonize Um, and that was true of china for most of its history too and of australia Um, but something changes as states develop and industrialize Uh, essentially one of the kind of iron laws one of the few very few iron laws that exist in social science is that as states economically develop they become more urban uh, as in industry and in jobs and other things become centered in cities and people no longer want to engage in farm labor and 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 take up land in the frontier and so essentially I extend this insight by basically arguing that as states develop it becomes increasingly difficult for them to settle contested frontiers even when they want to and so this helps explain that that big question you pose at the start of the book why do states like australia or China or the United States stop colonizing, well it's because they become too economically developed. They can no longer attract people to frontier areas with the promise of free land or other subsidies as everyone wants to move to major cities like Shanghai, like Melbourne, like Sydney. And that's essentially what I describe in two chapters of the book. I make this uh, unusual comparison um, between southern Xinjiang and, and Australia's Northern Territory and Papua New Guinea, which were both cases where states actively wanted to get people to move to a, to the frontier, uh, but couldn't get people to move there. So for China and southern Xinjiang, since the 1990s, it's it's seen the Uyghur population, the Muslim population, as disloyal, and has wanted to move Han Chinese into those areas in in order to quote unquote rectify the demography. Um, but Essentially, it's been unable to get many people to move there as most of the migration since that time has been to China's eastern seaboard and Han Chinese settlers have been scared off by the number of kind of terrorist attacks and the kind of creation of the security state there. So it's been. Really difficult for the Chinese state to actually reshape the demography of southern Xinjiang and to colonize that area with settlers since the since the 1990s, and that was that was true of Australia uh, as well in the uh, in its earlier period of development as well. So Australia in the mid 20th century faced a really key threat from Japan and um, of invasion, and um, so in response to this threat in the 30s and 40s. Australia really tried to recruit settlers to move into the Northern Territory, kind of northern um, part of Australia's mainland as well as to Papua New Guinea to especially former soldiers to provide a first line of defense against a future invasion but it was unable to get people to move there. Um, and so this is this paradoxical thing going on. That as, that as states become wealthier, as states like China and Australia become these wealthy, very strong, very capable states that you know can lock down whole cities in a moment, actually become much weaker at other dimensions, which specifically controlling migration and colonizing, because it can't incentivize people to uproot their lives from cities and move to frontier areas anymore, which forces them to rely on other strategies to either... Um, give up control over those frontier areas like Australia did in Papua New Guinea, or ultimately turn to um, to for mass incarceration and genocide, as uh, China did in Xinjiang.
1: Thank you for comparing um, those two cases. It's a really interesting one that demonstrates um, exactly this problem, that state-led does not necessarily mean successful. Uh, the state has a lot of things at their disposal, but cannot necessarily force people, or at least... Um, might not choose to undertake the amount of costs needed to force people. Um, And so this obviously tells us something about the conditions under which colonization is successful, that there's a kind of a a level of development aspect to it that can both, uh, if a country's less developed, perhaps enable colonization or get in the way once urbanization is really undertaken. Um, Are there any other conditions that these kind of these two examples in particular demonstrate that colonization sort of needs to work?
2: Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the, the like criti- I say that, you know, the, the existence of willing settlers is the, like the only necessary and sufficient condition for colonization, right? Because if settlers are willing to move to a frontier, then there might be settler-led colonization. They might be moving into those areas and um, and the state is forced to kind of either annex those areas or prevent the settlers from doing so. Um, and, and so that's the kind of, it's a sufficient condition and it's a necessary condition as well because states can only colonize when they have willing settlers. Um, and so that's why economic development, is kind of the key factor, I argue, to understand when states colonize, because as they develop, that the settlers change from being willing to being unwilling. And so um, states are effectively unable to colonize and the and these kind of settler-led and state-led colonization disappear. Um, and so, you know, I, I delve into, you know, the case like Australia and Papua New Guinea, where the, the internal debates of the time of whether to colonize, Northern Territory of Papua New Guinea are really fascinating because they tell us a lot about why Australia stopped ultimately decided not to colonize Papua New Guinea, because a number of economists estimated it would cost about a million dollars per settler to attract um, white Europeans to Papua New Guinea because they would have to construct all kinds of modern infrastructure like hospitals, like schools, like roads, like everything else that um, that people would want uh, in, an, in a in a modern urban state. Um, and they estimated that would be so. Essentially, to attract, you know, e- the equivalent number of people that Indonesia attracted to West Papua, Australia would have to spend three hundred billion dollars, whereas Indonesia had to only spend a small fraction of that um, to to attract three hundred thousand people to to um, West Papua. So, economic development is really the kind of key. Factor in explaining, um, but where the conditions under which state colonize, and the existence of um, of conflict is 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 in some ways the other key factor to explain state-led colonization. So you know even in like states that aren't very developed, um, like across um, sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, you don't see a lot of kind of state-led colonization today uh, because you don't see those kind of territorial conflicts um, that, that that are to the same level that you see in parts of Asia. So um, for, for instance, the conflicts between India and Pakistan over, over Kashmir uh, or Morocco in um, Western Sahara or um, between Thailand and Malaysia, over the southern Malay areas, or between Indonesia and Malaysia, uh, over kind of Borneo, these are all areas where states are really actively fighting over territory. Um, and that you don't see that in, in sub-Saharan Africa where the African Union really froze the colonial borders. Um, And so the kind of existence of conflict is the uh, territorial conflict specifically and kind of issues around border control and secession uh, and the fear of secession is the other kind of key factor to explain um, when states colonize.
1: So... Obviously, that last part of your answer uh, goes into it already, so I'd love to ask a bit more explicitly about how your theory is applicable beyond the in-depth case studies that you go into in the book and that you've um, explained to us here.
2: Yeah, so so I I, I spend a kind of... uh, After I do the in-depth case studies, um, I spend a chapter kind of surveying... um, where it is that indigenous peoples around the world today are actively being displaced and but from their lands by settlers. And um, what you see is that um, these tend to be less developed countries where there are ongoing territorial conflicts. So whether that's Morocco in Western Sahara, uh, Sri Lanka in the Tamil areas, uh, Indonesia in West Papua, um, India in its northeast and Kashmir, uh, Iraqi settlement in, in Kurdistan, um, and a Bangladeshi settlement in the Chittagong Hills or China in Xinjiang and Tibet. Um, all of these areas kind of share certain similarities uh, where they, they, they're countries that are less developed but also have a highly populous core where um, people are kind of willing to move to frontier areas if they're given free land. And there's a there's a kind of desire on the states to actively actually change the demography of frontier areas because they fear that if they don't don't do so that um, those areas will secede or be captured by a foreign claimant and I also spend a bit of time um, delving into the case of Israel um, so you know in that chapter I show essentially that um, to explain these patterns across the world you know where it is the indigenous peoples are being displaced um, by settlers it tends to be um, these, uh, it's, it only tends to occur in countries where the GDP per capita is less than six thousand um, dollars US dollars, um, r- roughly, which is kind of a middle-income com- country today. Um, so, so it, and you know, it doesn't really matter if you're a democracy or not, or other pa- other factors don't really seem to explain this. You know, why it is that colonization happens in these conflict zones in less developed countries. So, but Israel is this big outlier. Um, so Israel is the only highly developed country that still engages in colonization today uh, and ethnic cleansing. Um, and so why is that? And uh, you know, I I kind of delve into the Israeli case and, um, and say that Israel is, you know, in some ways it 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 shares the factors of the. Um, that kind of explain colonization or state-led colonization because there's this ongoing territorial conflict where ethnicity is highly salient and is a signal of your political loyalty. So changing the ethnic balance is a form of territorial consolidation. Um, but the strange thing about Israel is that it's been able to get people to move to frontier areas. That's what really is unique about Israel. And it's and what, what's unique about Israel and what explains its ability ability to get people to move to frontier areas is its unusual ge- geography. So, so with the West Bank and East Jerusalem are so close to Jerusalem that Israel has basically been able to um, settle much of the West Bank and East Jerusalem by displacing Palestinians and offering subsidized mortgages to Israeli urbanites. And these, these settlers who are the vast majority of surveys and surveys show that are economically motivated. These are settlers who just want to take up subsidized mortgages and, and are moving to the West Bank because it's cheaper for them to do so. Um, these settlers are basically still able to to access Jerusalem, still able to access a major urban center where they can work, where they can access modern services. And so that's what's really unusual about Israel is that it's this territorial conflict is occurring in such a small area where it's really almost as if Um, like London was trying to um, colonize Brighton or um, Melbourne is trying to colonize the Mornington Peninsula or you know um, Los Angeles is trying to colonize the Orange County like this area is such a so close to the the urban center that it's easy to get to incentivize people to move there um, with subsidized mortgages but and that's what makes it so different to say Australia's failure in Papua New Guinea or China's failure in Xinjiang or Portugal's failure in Angola or the United States' failure to colonize the Philippines, these areas were far more distant from urban centers um, and so the state had a much greater difficulty attracting settlers. Um, So that's what's really unusual about Israel and I also kind of just you know go further and discuss the case of Gaza because uh, Gaza is a case that does really illustrate my theory well. So Israel, unlike in the West Bank um, and in East Jerusalem, really struggled to colonize Gaza in the 1970s and 80s. It struggled to attract large numbers of of, his, of Jewish settlers there. Um, and this ultimately presented a crisis for the Israeli state because Gaza was relatively distant from any urban center. It was two hours' drive to Jerusalem. Um, and the small number of Israeli settlers there, about 15,000, were outweighed massively by the kind of million-strong Palestinian population. Um, and this was a kind of crisis, this presented a crisis for the Israeli state uh, in 2005. And Israel's response, much like Australia's response in Papua New Guinea, was ultimately to cleave off Gaza from the rest of the Israeli state. Um, and you know, Israeli s- leaders at this time even said they were doing so because of demography, because they were recognizing the fact that they couldn't get Jewish people to move there, and that the um, they could never outweigh the Arab population. And that was true for the um, for Australia and Papua New Guinea too. So you know, states that are highly developed, like Israel, Australia, really struggle to, to colonize areas that are relatively distant from any urban center, even if that distance is, say, two hours.
1: Thank you for um, explaining that. I think it does really illustrate uh, the theory and also explain kind of how Israel fits into this. Often, the idea of Israel being an exception um, might actually, in some you know, in some ways, that's true, right? Israel is developed, and yet they are still colonizing. But also, the way in which they are an exception very much is explained through the theory, um, given the geographic proximity. Um, so, I kind of want to bring in something that we've. I guess, in some ways mentioned, or at least it's implied, but haven't talked about directly, which is, of course, the idea of economic development, of urbanization, um, are all taking place in the context of the actual economic paradigm that we're in, right, of capitalism. So let's sort of link that, right? We've talked about the relationship between uh, successful colonization from the state and what that relates to in terms of economic development. So what can we then say in terms of decolonization, and how that relates to stages of capitalism?
2: Yeah, that's right. So that, um, so essentially, that, that's we can just return to that paradox that I mentioned at the start. Why did Australia decolonize Papua New Guinea? Right? Why did it allow Papua New Guineans independence? Or why did the United States decolonize um, uh, the Philippines? Or why did um, P- Portugal decolonize? Angola. Um, yeah, in some ways this is a paradox because um, for Marxist theories for a long time, you know especially Lenin famously linked capitalism to imperialism. So essentially Lenin believed writing in the early 20th century that as states develop, they would essentially grow so powerful that the world would eventually be divided into two or three states. But in fact, what we've seen over the last century is the opposite happened. Uh, after the 1945, we saw a fragmentation of European empires, and the American state, the Australian state, and the formation of all these new nation states. Um, and paradoxically, it was in these highly developed states that decolonization actually occurred. So, you know... Australia ended up being a decolonizer in New Guinea, for instance. Uh, and so it's for this reason that I say we should invert Lenin's famous claim that imperialism is the highest stage of capitalism, whereas my book actually argues that decolonization is the highest stage of capitalism. Because essentially following decolonization, we can define as indigenous self-determination, the process by which indigenous peoples gain control over land and independence. And indigenous peoples only have this ability when their lands are not being taken by settlers, when they're not being colonized. And so the kind of absence of colonization, the prevention of colonization becomes a precondition for decolonization. And states only stop colonizing when they become economically developed. So in some ways, economic development provides this kind of critical precondition for decolonization, as Australia only decolonized Papua New Guinea after it failed to colonize, it when it failed to attract white settlers there. On the, Indonesia, on the other hand, didn't has not decolonized West Papua. It has not granted the indigenous peoples there self-determination or independence because it's been in such an effective colonizer, because it's simply been able to displace indigenous peoples and settle their lands with, um, with members of um, kind of ethnic groups like the Javanese and Balinese. So decolonization in some ways emerges as the highest stage of capitalism because when states stop colonizing, they are forced to confront seriously for the first time as Australia did in Papua New Guinea or as Israel did in Gaza. What do you do with this population who uh, is in the frontier who are not considered core members of the state? Do you grant them citizenship and allow them to become full and equal members of, of the society or do you grant them independence? And that's essentially the story of how I show, or um, why it is that um, European states ended up granting independence to so much of their kind of former colonial possessions, because they had this kind of crisis. They didn't want to. They didn't want to grant equal citizenship and allow people in their empires to emigrate to the metropole to vote in their, their own elections. And so, granting them independence became the kind of best option in the in um, in the absence of being able to colonize.
1: Thank you for taking us um, through kind of how those things relate to each other. Uh, Again, kind of going back to what we talked about at the beginning, that there are traditional answers to these questions, um, but when poked at, they don't quite add up, uh, which is why the book is absolutely fascinating on that score. Um, But weirdly, that brings me to my last question, which is not actually about the book particularly. Um, Slightly unfair question, because this book has literally just come out but it is now out. People can read it. So is there anything you might be working on now or next that you'd like to share with the audience, whether or not it's a book? Um, is there anything you'd like people to be aware of?
2: Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm currently working on a project that basically builds off that, from that last comment, right, which is to explain decolonization. Because um, really what my book is, this book has shown is that Um, economic development uh, results in the end of colonization. But there's still variation, right, in how European states um, ended up decolonizing well, indigenous peoples in some areas, like Australia and Papua New Guinea, they did grant indigenous peoples independence. The same for, for for United States in the Philippines, but in other areas that wasn't true. So Australia, you know, never really granted indigenous peoples independence in other parts of its territory, or for the United States in Guam, for instance. And so uh, my belief is that you know this that these this, that and the same for France too. Uh, you know, France in the fifties famously like only. Um, extended kind of metropolitan uh, e- equality and citizenship to relatively small islands like Martinique, like Guadeloupe, like New Caledonia, whilst refusing equality and the rights of indigent of kind of indigenous peoples to migrate to France and to vote in French elections to relatively larger colonies like Vietnam or um, or Mozambique, uh, sorry, or um, uh, Madagascar. So. You know, I think there's there's something here that I think is interesting, um, whereby kind of population again, this kind of demography, and uh, can explain the process of decolonization, whereby states granted citizenship and equality to indigenous peoples from relatively small colonies, but um, granted independence to indigenous peoples to relatively large colonies, and that this was. Um, in their own interests to do so because they wanted to um, prevent pe- the indigenous peoples and large colonies from kind of entering the, entering the metropole and migrating to the metropole. So decolonization, contrary to how we often think about it, can often be a top-down process and utilized by the metropole to kind of further its own interests and prevent people from kind of gaining equality, citizenship, migration rights and voting rights.
1: Fascinating. Okay. Well, thank you very much for sharing your insights with us. Um, I really do for listeners who are intrigued by this conversation. The book, again, is titled Settling for Less, Why States Colonize and Why They Stop. Um, If you've been intrigued by anything we've discussed, I would strongly recommend reading the full book. There's lots of really interesting detail um, that further illuminates this theory and helps understand uh, these two very important questions that somehow you've put in the same book and it's not 800 pages long. Um, So congratulations for that as well. It's actually quite readable.
2: (laughs) Thanks. You know, I I did, um, yes, on that that note, yes, do not fear that it is a weighty time. I really tried to make this uh, a a good read and a a quick read.
1: It is certainly concise. um, And also I have to say, uh, very much appreciated how clearly structured it is. Um, You always know why you're, why you're telling us this thing and what how does this link to something else and what's the point of it um there was no point where i was going i don't understand why this page has what it has on it so that also really helps with readability to any listeners who are considering it um but that kind of brings us to the end of the interview so lachlan thank you so much for your time and being with us on the podcast
2: oh no it's been a it's been a pleasure thank you for um, letting me share my work